0: Last time we spoke about Operation Flintlock, the invasion of the Marshall Islands. The Allies brought overwhelming power against the Marshalls, unleashing the simultaneous invasions of numerous islands in an attempt to strike at the very heart of the island chain of Kwajalein. The horror of the Gilbert Island campaign plagued the minds of the commanders who hoped to thwart such carnage. Airstrikes, naval bombardments, and a massive amount of land-based artillery smashed the Japanese defenders into submission before amphibious assaults were made. Countless islands such as Roy Namur fell one by one as the Americans secured places to deploy further artillery to force the ultimate submission of the defenses on Kwajalein. The casualties were light, but the fight for Kwajalein would soon descend into a bitter struggle. The Japanese were not going to give up their stronghold without a good fight. This episode is The Fall of Quacheline. Welcome back to the Pacific War podcast, week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we begin, I just wanted to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I am releasing a five-part series on the invasion of Manchuria. This was something we could not cover too much in depth on this podcast. So, if you're interested, please check it out. Also, please go over and check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel, where I have more than 13 ongoing exclusive podcasts. For as little as $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcasts, and the other tiers offer other goodies like voting rights on what I'll cover next. Check it out. Operation Flintlock went off with a bang, and it was initially a grand success. Aerial bombing, followed by naval bombardment, and then land-based artillery was smashing the Japanese defenders into submission. One by one, islands were falling into American hands. On the second day of battle, Roy Namur, the Northern Objective, was seized. Yet the stronghold of Quageline would provide a much sterner fight. Back on the morning of January the 28th, Admiral Frederick Sherman's Task Force 58.3 landed a knockout blow against Quageline's airfield. Don would see Hellcat fighter sweeps ensure the airfield would not be tossing any further action before the amphibious assaults occurred. The next day, Sherman's force hit Eniwetok with the same kind of treatment. Sherman's carriers would remain off Eniwetok for three days while his aircraft smashed its airfields and ground installations. On the third day, not much was left, just heaps of rubble and a few scattered palm trees stripped of their foliage. Sherman's airmen would report, They could not find any targets on the ground or in the lagoon that seemed worth bombing, and the island looked like a desert waste. The warships came in on the 31st, just off Roy, and at 6.51 a.m., Admiral Connolly maneuvered Maryland 2,000 yards away from the northern beaches before unleashing his 16-inch guns. As Holland Smith put it, "...so close that his guns almost poked their muscles into Japanese positions." By 7.15 a.m., the naval guns were silent as carrier planes came swooping back in. Then 127 mm artillery from Roy began firing, alongside cruisers and destroyers. Return fire occurred, but just for a short amount of time as they were quickly snuffed out. Admiral Truman Heading recalled, We learned a lot about softening up these islands before we sent the Marines in. We really worked that place over. They developed a tactic called the Spruance haircut. We just knocked everything down. There wasn't even a palm tree left. The Quagel and Atoll Islands were hit with 15,000 tons of bombs and naval shells within 72 hours. Admiral Turner would make a Churchillian statement about the event. Never in history of human conflict has so much been thrown by so many at so few. Then transports carrying nearly 64,000 men of the 4th Marine Division and the 7th Army Division were launched at Ivan, Jacob, Allen, Andrew, Albert, and Abram Islands. Once they were secured, the Marines set up artillery batteries. The 7th Infantry Division was assigned the task of taking the banana-shaped Kwajalein Island, and their colleagues set up 105mm and 155mm howitzers on the nearby Roya Namur. The 32nd and 184th regiments landed on the lagoon side at 9.30 a.m. on February the 1st, first encountering only feeble and intermittent resistance. The eastern half of the island was secured in quick time, as the bombardments had certainly inflicted heavy casualties upon the enemy. The army moved slowly and methodically, advancing cautiously against the Japanese fixed positions. Soon they reached Carl Road, where they were met with an impressive defensive system consisting of anti-tank ditches on the south, and a long rifle trench to the north. As February the 2nd came on, so did another wide-scale smashing of the Japanese. Artillery fire on Carlson Island and from the 32nd Regiment's Cannon Company in the ward area coordinated with the tank and infantry movements. While the new assault units were moving up, the enemy in the Cornstrong Point were kept under heavy artillery bombardment and they were isolated from possible reinforcements by naval gunfire. Enemy guns that were still active in the northeastern end of the island were struck by dive bombers as well. The jump-off was ordered for 1245. A series of delays deferred this crucial attack for over an hour. To assemble the staff and to coordinate the plans for employing tanks, artillery, and infantry while the 3rd Battalion made its approach march proved very difficult to arrange. The time for the assault had passed before the planning difficulties were even resolved. Then came notice of an airstrike to be made at 1.15 p.m. later postponed, on Admiral Turner's orders, to 1.30, thus necessitating the suspension of all artillery fire. Since the attack on the Cornstrong Point was to be immediately preceded by heavy artillery barrage, the whole operation was postponed till 2. For the initial assault on the tank trap and Cornstrong Point, Colonel Lodgy's 32nd Infantry 3rd Battalion was ordered to pass through its 2nd Battalion at Carl Road to lead the attack. These fresh troops were to be supported by tanks of A and D Companies, the 767th Tank Battalion, and over on the left flank by the tanks of B Company, which would be temporarily detached from the 184th. The tanks of A Company, the 767th Tank Battalion, lined up on Carl Road to fire against the strong point while those from B Company took up positions almost at the right angles to that road prepared to strike the enemy from the left flank during the first stage of the attack. One of the artillery batteries on Carlson continued to fire during the airstrike, and the cannon company's howitzers also laid a preparation on the target area before the advance commenced at 2 p.m. Then, while the artillery lifted fire to ground northeast of the target, the tanks and infantry approached the tank trap in a 225-yard advance across some open ground. The tanks poured machine-gun fire into the area. Thirty yards behind them, the troops came forward to the shelter of the tank ditch without receiving an enemy shot. The assault initially saw the Americans pin down the Japanese. While the left wing of the infantry troops started to push across the Y-tank barrier, the tanks on their left momentarily broke off fire from the flank. A few tanks from A Company, 767th Tank Battalion, moved toward the ocean to bypass the deep ditch, and others, after a brief hesitation, laid a base of fire to cover the infantry's advance. The tanks hesitated to poke out along the flimsy wooden bridge by which Wallace Road cut through the angle of the tank trap. Now at this stage, a concentration of white phosphorus shells commenced to fall into the area as I Company, the 32nd Infantry, was advancing and countless men became burned. After hesitating briefly, the infantry moved steadily to the tank ditch. There, the troops remained for some time because the medium tanks pulled back, claiming they could not get over the ditch. The tanks finally broke through and began to make their way to the beach, smashing pillboxes in the corn strongpoint. An estimated 100 Japanese were killed in the area, the majority by demolition charges carried forward by engineers detailed with rifles and bar. Little or no defense was put up against these tactics. The Japanese remained huddled in their shelters in spite of the efforts made to coax them out to surrender. Only a single prisoner was taken in the whole area. Grenades were thrown into the shelters, and those who survived were then destroyed by demolition charges. Altogether, it took about 35 minutes to reduce Cornstrong Point once the American infantry got beyond the tank trap. Contact between the 4th Battalion of the 32nd Infantry and that of the 184th was temporarily lost during the fray and K Company, 32nd Infantry, moved through the left platoon of I Company to establish contact firmly as soon as the Cornstrong Point was taken. The advance to the Nora Road line seemed practicable within the time remaining before taking defensive positions for the night. To escape spending the night in an area too heavily wooded for security, the 3rd Battalion, 32nd Infantry, planned to advance northeast of the junction of Nora Road and Wallace Road even though that would place its perimeter slightly forward of the 184th front line elements, which were resting just short of Nora Road itself. To the north, Colonel O'Sullivan's 2nd Battalion began advancing at 1245, without tank support. F Company was on the right, while E Company was on the left along the lagoon. For the first 45 minutes, no serious resistance was met. There were no tank obstacles in the area, and the enemy's position along the lagoon shore were less formidable than had been expected. At 1.30, however, the 184th had to lend its medium tanks to the 32nd Infantry, as it later moved against Cornstrong Point. This left the infantry unprotected at a time when they began to meet their first serious resistance. Without the tank's support, the infantry became stalled. The 184th suffered over 60 casualties by the end of the day, including the loss of F Company's commanding officer. Sullivan was forced to organize night defenses just 100 yards northeast of Carl Road, which also forced Logie to pull back to the abandoned trenches of the Korn for the night. Heavy casualties were suffered that day, with 11 dead and 241 wounded. Japanese prisoners reported only 200 to maybe 300 defenders remained, so the Americans expected a bonsai charge to occur during the night. General Corlett's headquarters would warn, Be alert for counterattack at any time, day or night. It's bound to come. The Jap makes his suicide counterattack at dawn on the day after his cause becomes hopeless. Watch out tomorrow morning. And yet, there was no attack. So General Corlett prepared his men for a new assault at 7.15am. For the next day's operations, General Corlett ordered the two main assault regiments to quote, Organize vigorous attack at 7.15 tomorrow. Finish the job no later than 3 o'clock on the 3rd of February. The northern force at Roy Namer has finished the job. Now at this point, the Americans on Line faced a narrow 2,000 yards of island. After artillery rained down at 7 a.m., O'Sullivan's 1st Battalion advanced. Within the first 150 yards, B Company, along the lagoon, and A Company, At the right, advanced through some rubble and broken trees west of the Nora Road, without more than scattered rifle fire from Japanese riflemen, and the occasional light machine gun fire from some pillboxes. Their momentum carried them on for another 75 yards, with such rapidity that the prospects for swift advance seemed excellent. B Company cleaned out an air raid shelter with grenades and shot down some fleeing Japanese wearing armbands like those of American troops. Both companies were advancing over ground that had been under American motor fire just before the jump-off. At 8.06 a.m., enemy opposition was reported to be quite weak. After 250 yards, the Americans reached the Admiralty area, finding a group of shattered buildings along the lagoon shore, where it was believed the Japanese HQ must be. Among the ruins were several underground shelters with great earthen mounds above them. There was also some concrete blockhouses, Against strong resistance, B Company would not be able to advance any further. A Company, meanwhile, pushed further north and attempted to attack from the flank through the Admiralty area, but became quickly bogged down. At the same time, Logie sent forward his 3rd battalion with I Company rapidly advancing along the coast, while K Company stopped to subdue a large concrete pillbox on the corner of the Admiralty area. By midday, I Company reached the Newell Road, and K Company successfully bypassed the Admiralty area. Yet, behind them, there was a vertical gap, including most of the Admiralty area between the two regiments. Thus, Corlett sent Logie's 1st Battalion to cover the gap, and O'Sullivan's 2nd Battalion to swing right and continue to advance north, while his 1st Battalion contained and neutralized the Admiralty area. At 3.30, the new attack was launched, with Logie's 3rd Battalion rapidly smashing into the Nape strongpoint, while O'Sullivan's 1st Battalion concentrated on the Admiralty area, and his 2nd Battalion attacked north towards Knob Pier. E-Company started its attack before those of either G-Company or the 1st Battalion. At 240, E-Company began moving northwest. Somewhat more than half an hour later, E-Company crossed Newell Road, with G-Company on its right. Two medium and two light tanks, taken over from the 1st Battalion, moved forward with each of the companies, and each had one squad of engineered troops holding demolition charges. Enemy rifle fire was quite heavy. The men broke up into smaller groups, proceeding unevenly in the general direction of Pier. Between 6.30 and 7, Captain Peter Bladler, commander of E-Company, was seriously wounded. Control from the battalion command post was lost, seeing the men hugging the ground to avoid sharp fire from enemy riflemen. Colonel Achlich became separated from the main part of his battalion and was to remain so until the next morning. For all intents and purposes, he lost command of his own unit. The 2nd Battalion's attack was pushed along the eastern side of Will Road towards Nathan Road, but as sunset approached, it became evident not only that E Company would not reach Knop Pier, but also that across Will Road on the left flank, there was an area with many strong enemy defensive positions that were too powerful to be occupied within just 45 minutes. Meanwhile, at 345, A Company of the 1st Battalion was joined by two medium tanks and C Company by two mediums and two M10 tank destroyers. At 4.05, the assault of the western edge of the built-up Admiralty area, along a 300-yard front, with A Company's right wing somewhat south of the Noel Road. Ten minutes later, they advanced towards the lagoon. Will Road was crossed shortly after 4.30. The enemy was much more firmly established between the highway and the beach, in pillboxes, blockhouses, and strong shelters. Mortar fire kept the enemy down until the tanks and infantry approached. The coordinated efforts of the tanks, infantry, and demolition teams ran very smoothly, gradually destroying the pillboxes and blockhouses of the Admiralty area, successfully reaching the lagoon by 6 p.m. To the east, Logizai Company rapidly reduced the weakly defended Knapp strongpoint, and then pushed forward towards the objective of Nathan Road with haste while the other companies made slower progress against stronger defenses and would not be able to reach their own objectives before nightfall. The Japanese in the areas south of the front line were in greater numbers than on either of the preceding nights of the Kwajalein Island operation. They prowled in the forward area all night. Some incidents occurred as far to the rear as Cornstrong Point, more than 1,000 yards from the 32nd Infantry's advanced position. Japanese would come out of shelters, screaming and yelling, throwing grenades, and charging at men in their foxholes. They fired rifles and threw grenades from buildings that offered places of advantage, In a pocket northeast of the Admiralty area, they greatly harassed the companies near them. Attacks from the north and from the lagoon shore were also attempted by enemy troops at various times during the night. Just after sunset, a bugle would be heard sounding amongst the enemy shelters near the base of Pier, and shortly afterwards, a headlong counterattack by screaming Japanese was made towards E&G the 184th Regiment. As the Japanese tried to cross Will Road, they were cut down to the very last man. Five more attacks were broken up before they could actually start, by barrages along the entire front, from motors, and from supporting batteries of artillery on Carlson Island. And even more attacks followed them after midnight. From various positions beyond Nathan Road, enemy machine gun fire, motor, and artillery fire were directed into the forward area, at irregular intervals, during the night. Sometimes coinciding so closely with the fire from Carlson Island, that Japanese monitoring the artillery radio were suspected. Nonetheless, over 1,000 yards had been gained by February the 3rd. The Americans estimated they had killed around 1,300 Japanese, more than was to be expected, still left on the island, at the cost of 54 dead and 255 wounded. After sunset, several Japanese counterattacks and infiltration attempts were carried out against the steadfast Americans, always ending disastrously. Corlett expected to end the enemy resistance by February the 4th, but far too many small pockets remained in the rear, and the reserve battalions were experiencing difficulties rooting them out. Quillet's final plan was for Logie's 1st Battalion to clear the remainder of the island, allowing companies C, B, and A to attack through Sullivan's 2nd Battalion and Logie's 3rd Battalion. Yet unbeknownst to him, O'Sullivan had also directed his 2nd Battalion to attack towards Napier, in order to complete the unfinished task of the previous day. At 7.15, Quillet unleashed his final attack, supported by tanks. Over in the east, Logos Companies A and B ran into a full-scale battle with the Japanese, who had been bypassed the day before, and who now poured heavy fire on the companies as they advanced through the line of departure. It was not until 10 a.m. that the two first Battalion companies reached the lines held by the 3rd Battalion. Then the Americans successfully managed to advance 200 yards past Nathan Road, where the advance was stopped pending relief. Meanwhile to the west, the attack of O'Sullivan's 2nd Battalion, supported by B Company, prevented the advance of Logie C Company until 11am. The Americans managed to push towards Napier by one, where they found no enemy resistance. Behind them, the lagoon shore continued to be mopped up, showcasing a surprising number of Japanese and Koreans surrendering. I probably have not mentioned this before, but while it's Easily widely known that the Koreans surrendered wherever they could, the Koreans would also try to get the Japanese to surrender. They were probably the most successful at doing so. All forward movement of the 1st Battalion had stopped, its line consisting of a series of small, exhausted groups and dense confusion of debris. The ground was interlaced with some innumerable trenches and a foul amount of bodies of the enemy, many of them long dead. Some of the corpses had been mangled by maneuvering tanks, adding greatly to the nauseating stench of the blighted area. Finally, at 345, Louis Second Battalion passed through the 1st to complete the assault against Quagiline. These troops were successfully pushed to the island's northern tip, blasting through the remaining Japanese camouflage dugouts and ruined concrete blockhouses. Just as in every other island battle, Japanese stragglers had infiltrated the American lines through tunnels and overlooked bunkers and the assault troops quickly learned to watch their backs. Nisai interpreters broadcast surrender appeals through loudspeakers, but there was only a few dozen takers. Most of the men who gave themselves up were also Korean laborers. Yet at long last, G Company reached Narrow Point at 3.15, and at 4.10, Corlette radioed Admiral Turner. All organized resistance has ceased. The troops have been organized for mop-up operations. Yet, despite this, F Company would still methodically destroy the enemy positions until they finally secured Line's northern end at 7.20. Ken Dodson went ashore the next morning, writing to his wife as he described the desolate landscape he could see. Shell craters and hillocks of upturned coral. Some of the Japanese have been dead from the first bombardment, the day before we even landed. Their bodies were seared and bloated and the stench was sickening. I saw one half-buried in a pillbox. You could not tell whether he had on any clothes or not. The skin was burned off his back, and his head lay a few feet from his body. Another looked like a bronze statue in the Golden Gate Park. He lay forward in a crouch, helmet still on, both hands holding onto a coconut log of his pillbox. There were many, many others— I lie in bed at night remembering how they looked, and that awful, sweetish, sickening stench of powder, and kerosene, and decaying human flesh. And I wonder, after all, what war is all about. I feel sorry for those Japs, in a way. They died courageously after a stubborn, last-ditch, hopeless fight. They fought for things they had been taught to believe in, with their poor little bundles, with pictures of their wives and kitties tied to their belts. They can't tell me war is a fine and noble thing. Losses during the last day were 252 wounded, with 65 Japanese killed and over 100 captured. Thus, for the Battle of Kwajalein Island, the Americans would suffer a total of 142 killed, 845 wounded, and two missing. They reported killing over 4,300 Japanese and capturing another 166. During the week after Operation Flintlock, numerous high-ranking visitors descended upon the battle-scarred islands of Kwajalein Atoll. Admiral Nimitz flew out from Pearl Harbor with an entourage of officers. On February 5th, when fires were still burning on Kwajalein Island, he toured the Blackened Wastes alongside Admiral Spruance, Turner, and Smith, and several other major commanders of the fleet in the amphibious corps. Three weeks earlier, Nimitz had been the guest of honor at a huge Texas picnic over in Honolulu Park. Walking amongst 40,000 sailors, soldiers, and civilians, he had pitched horseshoes, posed for photographs, and signed autographs. Afterwards, the park looked as if it had been hit by a hurricane. Cleanup crews had to cart away apparently more than 50 truckloads of garbage and debris. An estimated 120,000 beer bottles had been left strewn across the grass. Now upon setting foot of the Lagoon Beach at Quajaline, Nimitz was waylaid by the mob of correspondents. "'What do you think of the island?' a war correspondent asked. The admiral drew a cheerful laugh, and he replied, "'Gentlemen, it's the worst scene of devastation I have ever witnessed, except for the Texas picnic.'" The entire operation had been a perfect model in almost every respect. The attacking force had achieved strategic surprise. Artillery preparation, naval gunfire, and aerial bombardment had successfully softened up the target in a fashion unexcelled at any other time in the Pacific War. The ship-to-shore movement had been conducted expeditiously and without too many hiccups this time. Supplies flowed ashore and to the front lines relatively smoothly and without interruption. The infantry engineer teams assisted by tanks moved steadily, clearing the enemy from shelters and pillboxes. And American casualties had been fairly light. Altogether, the battle for Quajaline represented the ideal for military operations. To complete the conquest of the Southern Quagaline Islands, detachments of amphibian tanks had been landed on Buster and Byron back on February the 3rd. Troops of the 2nd Battalion, 17th Regiment landed on Burnett and Blackenship and Ship on February the 4th. The chain between Ashbury and Bennett was secured by February the 5th. On that same day, Clement, Clarence, and Clifford Islands were also secured, although on Clifton, a force of 101 Japanese fought to the death. Beverly, Benson, and Berlin were also secured on February the 5th, seeing 119 Japanese dead on the later. Bennett fell against the 7th Reconnaissance Troops of O'Sullivan's 3rd Battalion, with 94 Japanese killed. Most importantly, Colonel Zimmerman's 1st and 3rd Battalions landed on Burton's Beach Orange 4. The fortifications on Burnt were made much lighter than those on Quajaline, mostly machine gun positions and rifle pits. These positions were organized at the beaches with a concentration of dual-purpose machine guns grouped around the seaplane base in the lagoon. At the base of the south seaplane ramp was a 20mm anti-aircraft machine gun. Near it, in between those two seaplane ramps, were 2 30 13mm single-mount machine guns, three 7.7mm machine guns, and a concrete pillbox. Two 8-centimeter dual-purpose guns were located on the ocean shore. The large number of empty machine gun emplacements would seem to indicate that the defenses on the island had been completed at the time of the invasion. The fuel pillboxes found in the vicinity of the seaplane base were quite small, reinforced concrete shelters, each with two firing ports facing seaward. Most of the fire trenches and rifle pits were on the ocean side at the center of the island and at the north and south ends of the island. On the morning of February the 3rd, after a heavy artillery, air, and naval bombardment, the 1st Battalion traversed the southern end of the island against weak resistance and began pushing north, supported by tanks, ultimately getting stopped by a strong enemy resistance at Bailey Pier. The following morning, the assault was resumed at 7.30 a.m., and the main enemy resistance had shifted to the eastern side of the island. The Japanese had reoccupied four pillboxes close to the American front line on the ocean side, and they were able to hold up A Company but with the aid of self-propelled mounts. The company took the positions. During the morning, a flight of five Navy bombers made two runs over the targets that had been spotted with the aid of information from a prisoner. The planes dropped a total of 2 and 3 quarter tons on an ammunition dump, a shelter, and a heavy machine gun that had an excellent field of fire across the hangar apron. Direct hits on these targets apparently disheartened the enemy. Not a single shot was fired by them, at any later time during the operation. They remained buried in their dugouts until forced out or killed themselves. By 1130, when the 3rd Battalion passed through and took up the assault, B Company had moved about 350 yards to the southern edge of the concrete apron, and on the right, A Company was about 50 to 75 yards further back. The 3rd Battalion continued to advance north against meager resistance, ultimately reaching Byrd's northern tip by 1210. After this, the last of the enemy were readily mopped up, and by 337, the island was fully secured. During this battle, the 17th Regiment suffered seven deaths and 82 wounded, while reporting 450 Japanese dead. Meanwhile to the north, the 25th Marines, led by Colonel Samuel Cumming, occupied some 55 islands in the northern part of the atoll between February 2nd and 7th, finding absolutely zero enemy resistance. With Kwajalein Atoll finally secured, the next objective in the Marshall Islands for Admiral Nimitz and Spruance would be in Iwitok, where Major General Nishida Noshimi was preparing his men to fight to the very last. But that is going to be all for the Marshall Islands today as we are now traveling over to the CBI Theater where Generals Christensen and Stilwell's offensives will continue. Now last time we left off with the gang in Burma, General Liao's 22nd Division, Colonel Rothwell Brown's 1st Provisional Tank Group, General Merrill's Galahad unit, alongside other Chinese and American engineers, were busy building the Lido Road, at this point going through the Hukawang Valley. Location parties up ahead were clearing the way with bulldozers and putting in centerline stakes. The final clearing averaged about 150 feet. The route of the Lido Road in some cases followed existing roads, a circumstance that did not greatly diminish the amount of clearing needed. Most clearing was done by bulldozer. Combat trails and access roads were cleared to the necessary minimum that would permit heavy equipment to use them. In the valleys, the road was generally built on embankments in order to lift it above flood level. In the mountainous regions, side-hide cuts were used. The road itself had about seven culverts to the mile, in the mountains and about five to the mile in the lowlands. These culverts were most necessary as the road was a barrier to the normal runoff of water. Surfacing was with streambed gravel in the valley sections and, so far as hauling permitted, natural gravel in the mountainous sections. Surfacing was about 10 inches thick on average and from 20 to 28 feet wide. Compaction was by the normal road traffic. Two regiments of Chinese engineers did pioneer construction work. There was also a combat road, a hasty improvement of the existing Kamang Road plus the Kachin and Naga trails, that ran through the Shibuyang. Yipbanga and Taipaga, and then went south. The trace of the Lido Road was moved to higher ground in the north. Forward construction units were rationed from combat supply points. While all this was going on, Vinegar Joe sought to end the campaign with a single decisive victory. He planned to deploy the 1st Tank Battalion as an armored spearhead against Manquan, the 1st Battalion 66th Regiment, The 113th was to follow down the road to take over successive positions, while the 114th would assemble at Taipaga in the reserve, and the 112th was to protect the flank east of Tanai, advancing on Mashidaru. He expected his men to hit the enemy across the rear areas. Now January had been a very rainy month. Armored warfare does not do too well in mud, so it was important the terrain was dry for the offensive. Stilwell would end up on February the 4th deciding to shift the bulk of his 22nd division to seize the Yangbang-Lakian line, while General Sun's 38th division cleaned up the area south and east of Tanai. Once this first phase was done, then-General Liao's two regiments could support an armored advance south towards Hualimbum. The bad weather, however, also delayed the roadwork and hampered the supply lines. Stilwell bided his time, building up a reserve at Xingbiuyang and Ningam, while his men progressed their work on the Lido Road. They built an airfield at Taipa before launching his second phase. This unfortunately also gave enough time for General Tanaka to prepare an orderly withdrawal towards Maikwan. During early February, General Soon's 32nd Division successfully accomplished their part of the mission. But to the southwest, the enveloping hook from the Taro Plain did not go as planned. By February the 14th, the 66th Regiment were beginning to arrive on the Taro Plain through heavy rain, but only the third battalion of the 65th Regiment managed to join them. The 66th Regiment was forced to continue without proper support until they diverted to Yangbanga, which they seized on the 16th. By the 18th, Still and Liao personally went over to check on the regiment's location and found their entire force was within the neighborhood of the 66th command post. It seems in the utter confusion during these movements, well, it saved the Japanese, and as quoted by General Tanaka. If the Chinese 65th and 66th Infantry Regiments operating in the vicinity of Yangbang had been prompt in closing in on our left rear flank on the 15th or the 16th as predicted, the main force of the 18th Division would have been in a grave crisis. After sorting out all of the confusion, the Chinese advanced from Yopanga to Lakanga. There they captured a Japanese document indicating that they were withdrawing thus another chance to envelop the enemy had just been lost. Meanwhile, to support Stillwell's offensive, the two allied long-range penetration units, the Chindits and Merrill's Marauders, were preparing to embark on a brand new mission, codenamed Operation Thursday. It was to be the second Chindit expedition with the objective of mounting a long-range penetration behind the Japanese who were opposing Stillwell's forces in the Northern Front. It was hoped the action would prevent the arrival of any reinforcements from the two Japanese divisions on the Central Front. General Hap Arnold wanted his airmen to take the Chindits behind the Japanese lines to carry their supplies, evacuate their wounded, and eventually to fly them off, so he decided to create the 1st Air Commando Unit under Lt. Col. Philip Cockrum. This unit consisted of a squadron of P-51s, one of B-25s, 100 C-4A Waco gliders, a squadron of C-47s. Arnold spelled out the mission to Cochrane and Lieutenant Colonel John Allison, his deputy, by saying this. Wingate has really done some remarkable things. He has walked through the jungles. He has carried his supplies on mules. It takes him about six weeks to get his men through the jungle, across the rivers, and in behind the Japanese lines. The next time he goes in, I don't want him to walk. I want him to go by air. I want to make this an air operation completely independent of land transport. I want to demonstrate that you can use the air just like the Navy uses the sea. You can land and maintain a force and support it in battle. I want you to go in there and take out General Wingate's wounded. We will make available the resources that you need. I not only want you to do that, but I want the USAAF to spearhead General Wingate's operations. We gathered, he wouldn't mind if we turned it into a little air show. And the Mad Onion Lad Wingate also wanted to create strongholds within the Japanese-controlled areas that could serve as bases to receive aircrafts of all types, store supplies, hold wooded units that could be extracted later, to act as a center for locals resisting the enemy. The motto for the stronghold, as he called it, was No Surrender. Meanwhile, Stilwell ordered Merrill and his marauders to close in on Lido by February the 7th, and the last American unit would arrive to Margarita on February the 9th. Merrill's marauders were to assemble at Nigmien by February the 21st, whereupon they would envelop the 18th Division's eastern flank, and block the Kamang Road near Chaduzap and to support Sun's 113th Regiment. Simultaneously, Stilwell's other troops were preparing for their attack on Manquan. Further in the south, General Christensen's XV Corps was in a lot of trouble. The Japanese had been bringing in a lot of reinforcements for their forthcoming Arakan counteroffensive from both within and outside the Burma Theater throughout December and January. By early February, General Hanaya had assembled his men and he was ready to launch the first phase of Operation Hago. General Hanaya, planned to destroy the 7th Indian Division in the region east of the Mayu Range using a pincer movement launched simultaneously from the north and south. After this, he would shift the main weight of the 55th Division near Nagangyang against the 5th Indian Division in the Mangdao region west of the Mayu Range. From there, he hoped to advance along the Caledon Valley to perform the second phase of Haigo, named the Caledon Operation. For this, the men would advance towards Chittagong to distract attention around Impal and to draw British reserves into the Arakan region. On the night of February the 3rd, Hanaya unleashed his offensive, with several columns under the command of Major General Sakurai Takutaro, commander of the 55th Infantry Group. His force secretly infiltrated through the jungle under the cover of darkness, on the left bank of the Kalapazin River near Buthadong through gaps between the seventh division's widely separated brigades. The element of terrain and weather was paramount. Throughout the dry season, a morning mist with heavy dew formed daily in the small hours and, unless cleared by rain and wind, normally persisted till well after sunrise. The noise made by the dew falling from the trees on the dry undergrowth was loud enough to draw the sound of footsteps so that in the jungle, Movement in the early morning could be unheard as well as unseen. The tides were an important factor in planning, for at high tide, many of the Chong's were unfordable. The knife-edge ridges into which the Japanese so often dug their defenses presented an unusual artillery problem. If guns were to bring effective fire to bear, they had to be sighted on the line of the axis of the ridge, which was always difficult and sometimes impossible. Fire from any other angle meant that the reverse slope defenses were untouched, and accurate ranging was extremely difficult. The dense jungle covering the hilltops greatly restricted their use as observation points. Using the early morning mists, Hanaya's men shrouded their columns' advance cutting deeply into the British defenses. At about 9 a.m., the Whaler Lancers reported to the 7th Division by wireless that a column of Japanese about 100-strong, followed by another 800-strong, were approaching Tong Bazaar. Major General Frank Meservy immediately ordered his reserve brigade, the 89th, to advance north to locate and destroy them, and he asked the 15th Corps to speed up the arrival of tanks. Christensen ordered the 25th Dragoons to send a squadron to and the 5th Division to send an infantry detachment to prevent infiltration over the Gope Pass. The 89th Brigade advanced north in two columns. The right column encountered the Japanese at about 4 p.m. near Inyong, resulting in hand-to-hand fighting, and the left reached the bend of the Chong east of Pringyang. The right column dug in at Inyong and Linbabi, and left over the Princhang. Although the main force of the 1st Echelon was delayed by some confusion, the advance guards surprised the Tongbazar garrison at 7 am. Without delay, the battalion crossed the Kalapazan River south of the Tongbazar, using the captured boats, and was followed closely by the 2nd Echelon and the 3rd Battalion of the 112th Regiment. The main body of the 1st Echelon crossed the river northwest of the Tongbazar on the morning of the 5th. By 9 am, Tong Bazaar was overwhelmed as the Japanese forces crossed the Kalapazan River to cut the Yigaki Dok Pass in order to isolate the 7th Division. Meanwhile, the 1st Battalion, 213th Regiment, headed towards Nagangyong, and the battalion advanced parallel to the Sakurai Column before moving towards Gopi Bazaar. It was held up short of its objectives, however, by the leading elements of the 26th Indian Division committed from Army Reserves on the 5th of February to bolster the 15th Corps. Despite this local setback, the Japanese hauled their mountain guns and equipment over the Mayu Range, midway between Gope and Igaki before attacking administrative troops, bridges, dumps, ambushing convoys, and building a roadblock on the main line of communications along the Bali-Madok Road. It failed to prevent supplies reaching the 5th Indian Division, however, whose ammunition, equipment, and food was being transported by sea to Mangdao. Overnight, the rear of the 15th Corps were transformed into a front line with administrative troops bearing much of the burden dealing with the advancing Japanese troops. To the surprise of many officers, they displayed a determination and fighting spirit unknown a year before and took a heavy toll upon the Japanese attackers, bearing out Slim's direction that every man in the army should be a soldier first and a tradesmith or specialist second. The bulk of the 112th Regiment, led by Colonel Tanahashi Shinzaku, marched towards the pass as the 2nd Battalion, 143rd Regiment of Sakurai's HQ advanced south. They quickly found enemy resistance near Inyang, which delayed their advance for over two days. Failing to make contact with General Sakurai, the battalion continued to advance southward, bypassing Auenbin. Major General Sakurai and his headquarters also got involved in fighting off enemy counterattacks near Inyang on the 5th and 6th, and due to the failure of his communications, he was unable to keep in touch with his units. To further support the offensive, Japanese fighters and bombers from the 5th Air Division's 7th Air Brigade launched a heavy offensive to gain air superiority over the battlefield, using 34 fighters and 10 bombers. Between the 4th and the 14th, their fighters flew 350 sorties, and bombers attacked the Bali, Embryasco Bridges, and Shinzuya. Spitfires intercepted them but had less success than before. Japanese losses were believed to be some 14 aircraft destroyed and a number damaged, while RAF losses during the same period were around 11 fighters. On February the 5th, having made such quick progress, Hanaya ordered the 143rd Regiment to advance north. The 3rd Battalion, 143rd, managed to infiltrate through the Indian Brigades en route and joined Sakurai's men to hit the pass. Seeing the danger, General Slim decided to reinforce Christensen with the 26th Indian Division led by General Lomax. Christensen, in turn, ordered Lomax to move forward to Bali Bazaar as quickly as possible. Upon their arrival at Bali North, the 71st Brigade was ordered to relieve the detachment from the 5th Division on Gope Pass and then to attack the Japanese operating in the rear of the 7th Division's area. Likewise, the 36th Indian Division of Major General Festing sped up their advance towards Chittagong, while C-46 Commandos and C-47 Dakotas airdropped ammunition, food, and other supplies to the front units. On the morning of the 6th, the 112th Regiment reached the sector north of Sinzua and overran the headquarters of the British Indian 7th Division, while the 1st Battalion cut the Ngakidok Pass. In a perfect position to envelop the enemy in Sinzua. Colonel Tanahashi disregarded the vital necessity for speed, and he delayed for 24 hours, giving the British time to establish a perimeter defense in the Suzuwa Basin. East of the range, at about 5 a.m., an enemy force estimated at battalion strength penetrated the widely separated posts held by the company of the 24th Engineer Battalion, defending the 7th Divisional Headquarters, establishing machine gun posts on tracks throughout the headquarters area, and broke into the signal center. In hand-to-hand fighting, the attackers were driven out, but not before all communications had been cut and ciphers compromised. Tanks from Sinzawa moved to the sound of the fighting as soon as it was light, but the ground prevented them from reaching the headquarters area. Rain, which had set in about 8.30, further hampered them, and they had to withdraw. At about 10 a.m., the signal center was finally overrun. Mazervi, unable to exercise command any longer, sent orders to all branches of his headquarters to destroy papers and equipment of value to make their way in small parties to Sinzawa. Most of them succeeded in doing so during the following 24 hours. Major General Frank Meservi and his staff would manage to successfully escape towards Sinzawa. Consequently, instead of ordering a general withdrawal like the Japanese had expected, Christensen directed the 9th Brigade to organize a defense of Sinzawa which was the weakest link of the four isolated, self-contained, all-round defensive boxes held by each brigade of the 7th Division. By the 7th, the defense of Sinzua, also known as the admin box, had been consolidated. The perimeter consisted of a series of small defended posts held in the main by administrative units, except at the southeast and southwest corners where the roads entered the area. These points were held by the 4th and 8th Gurkhas and a company of the 2nd West Yorkshire. There were insufficient troops to hold the whole of the Point 315 feature, and thus there was a deep re between the southeast and northeast corners of the perimeter extending back to the southern end of Ammunition Hill. Most of the artillery was disposed on the southern face with attachments holding perimeter posts. The 25th Dragoons were in a mobile reserve in two harbors held by the companies of the 3 and 4th Bombay Grenadiers, one on each side of Ammunition Hill. The 2nd West Yorkshire constituted an infantry reserve and was located with divisional and garrison headquarters on the western side of Ammunition Hill. The main dressing station in the southwest corner was being moved to a more secure area. During the night, the Japanese launched an assault against Sinzuwa, yet the tenacious defenders managed to hold on against the fierce enemy pressure. That night, the 33rd Brigade also managed to repel an attack against Sinomien, though the arrival of reinforcements would allow Sakurai to extricate himself from Inyang and head over to Sinzuat to take command over the assault. On February the 8th, all British troops east of the Mayu Range were receiving supplies by air, yet the strong presence of enemy fighters disrupted the first few attempts. Eventually, British air superiority would be restored. The number no. 31 Squadron and 62 Squadron were reinforced on the 10th by the 194th Squadron and on the 25th by the 117th Squadron, recently arrived from the Middle East. Not only were the 7th and 81st Divisions kept supplied with food and ammunition, but such amenities as cigarettes, rum, mail, razor blades, and newspapers were delivered by air to the troops in increasing quantities as time went on, certainly boosting morale. Throughout the battle, the Strategic Air Force and the 224th Group gave constant close support to the 15th Corps. In addition to providing escorts for the transport squadrons, hurricanes harried road, river, and coastal transports on the Japanese lines of communication to the Arakan region, making movement by day into the area virtually nonexistent. Tactical bombing of enemy positions was undertaken by two Vengeance Squadrons, which flew no less than 269 sorties in just over a week. The transports flew a total of 714 sorties in five weeks successfully delivering nearly 2,300 tons of supplies. From the night of February the 8th onwards, the admin and other boxes would also hold firm against repeated ferocious Japanese infantry night assaults, occasional air attacks, and limited artillery bombardment from a handful of mountain and battalion guns, by day, and medium guns firing from the nearby tunnels, thus showcasing the new spirit of the British Indian troops. As quoted by Lieutenant General Ponnell. We've learned how to fight where we stand and not to be frightened of the bogey of infiltration. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Over there I've just released the second episode in a five-part series I did on the invasion of Manchuria. That episode focuses on the resistance of General Shan. It is a rather niche part of history, but I assure you, it's some of my best content. Also, please check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel where you can find more exclusive podcasts. More than 13 or so by this point. And it is not exclusive to the Pacific War. I cover just about any type of history that my audience wants to hear more about. Or sometimes not even history. I am something of a Tolkien scholar. A lot of those uh, Lord of the Rings episodes over at the second channel, Wizards and Warriors? Yeah, that's me writing them. So please, check it out. Line has finally fallen, leaving the rest of the marshals at the mercy of the colossal Allied air, land, and sea forces. Within the Burma theater, the Chinese, British, Indian, and Americans were ferociously meeting the Japanese. Showcasing their dominance in the theater was no longer a sure thing. Now the Japanese faced a much stronger enemy.